After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. It's mind rolling. Raghu's back with with the original manifestor of mind rolling, David Silver. Hi, Dave. Hey, Raghu. Good to be here in the uh, in the mind rolling salon. Yes, <laughs> glad to have you. I'm I'm managing to catch David every once in a while, uh, and. Um, yeah, one day we'll talk about this other project that you're doing that's um, going to be quite a great thing, aside from the book. So, I uh, I mean, this came up happenstance, really. It was all right. about, uh, hey, let's do something. And of course, on our minds, on a day-to-day basis, is the, what I call the gigantic sea change that happened over the new year and into it now we are going on four months and um, and David just thought you know what I just happened to see a bunch of different writings of Thich Nhat Hanh teachings and I thought what better thing to do to share with everybody out there because talk about a man of peace mindfulness, awareness. I mean, he is the epitome of it. And uh, what do you want to talk a little bit about how you first ran into uh, even knowing about Thich Nhat Hanh and any any other experiential thing about him? Well, um, who he is. You know, he's a, a great monk um, from Thailand, right? Um, and Vietnam. He was not, uh, Vietnam, sorry. Bad mistake. Uh he walked the killing fields in not in Cambodia but in 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 Vietnam where there were just nothing but bodies around him and led monks through these killing fields and uh, started his teaching of trying to deal with enormous adversity most of us who have never experienced anything close to this uh, Vietnam was a, a genocide as we know now revised in history as a great American hero platform but it wasn't it was a genocide and 55,000 Americans died and millions two and a half million of Cambodians and Vietnamese died for no reason whatsoever people now go surfing in in communist Vietnam so he emerged from that and Martin Luther King Dr. King uh, when um, Thich Nhat Hanh was uh, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize said that uh, 
there was no one on earth that deserved it more than him. Mm-hmm. And coming from Dr. King, uh, you know, that means a lot to me. And uh, that's just sort of way back. Now he's much older, obviously, and has gone through a lot of illness and so forth, but still with us, thank God. Yes, and, almost uh, died of a stroke just recently in the last couple of years, is still recovering. Right. So when Rago and I uh, talked preliminarily a few days ago about doing this podcast, um, I happened to be looking at uh, some of his writing, uh, some of Thignard Hahn's writings, and um, it seemed very appropriate that we should talk about him in this time of incredible um, turmoil and violence and lies and chicanery and corruption and just about the worst thing I've experienced since I've been on this planet, which is a long time, which is the ascension to the American presidency of a bunch of scoundrels and liars. And we don't know what they're going to do. We saw them do a fruitless and pointless attack upon Syria. <laughs> they attacked an airfield, which is supposed to be the airfield where the chemicals, the chemical attack, the dreadful chemical attack was... Um, launched and now I found out on CNN this morning that airplanes are taking off from that that same airport in other words they did nothing zero they didn't even destroy the runways which is the the thing that always happens when you attack airfields is you destroy the runways so the planes can't take off but they're taking off and it's just not just the violence and the horror of the children that were killed and 400,000 Syrians have died so far in this war and we've done nothing uh, and those that say that Obama did nothing should remember that Obama tried to do something and was voted down by the Republican Congress. Uh, you know, he, he wanted to do strikes at one point, and the Republicans, our great heroes, uh, voted him down. So the hypocrites are now accusing In Trump's speech, when he, you know, from his palace said that he ordered this strike, he immediately, instead of talking about the children or the horrors of this, he immediately launched into a diatribe about Obama, which shows you how much he really felt about this. So this awful scenario that we're in, it couldn't be worse apart from a nuclear war, um, which is not impossible to imagine at this point. How do we deal with this? As people who are living comfortable lives in the United States um, or elsewhere, how do we deal with this as simultaneously happening where not only is the world in terrible turmoil and awful stuff is going on in Ukraine in Syria, in Iraq in Afghanistan, in North Korea in the Democratic Republic of Congo all over, in South Sudan where there's enormous starvation at this time the worst starvation of our entire lives well how do we deal with this apart from being activists and helping how do we put ourselves into a state where we are strong and poised and have equanimity and no rage, although you can hear it in my voice, I'm sure. Um, how do we do that? And it seems to me that this amazing Vietnamese teacher is one of those conduits to to strengthening ourselves, along with many, many, many other teachers. Uh, Ram Dass has been particularly incredible in his writings recently on, on, your, on your website Rog on Love Serve Remember website he's, he's done many and emails to us all about how to deal with this and he's certainly not saying we should just uh, meditate and and, uh, and play with our beads and eat granola <laughs> he's been saying there is a way to be activist without being enraged mm-hmm. 
and I think Rago and I are about to talk about that kind of um, thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. Something like that. Yeah. Now, I before we even get into it, uh, I think everything that you've said qualifies as uh, under the basic suffering moniker. Right. There's a lot of suffering going on, and yeah. from from your point of view and mine, the uh, this change of administration is a cause of deep pain and suffering. Uh, looking out at from our point of view, the kinds of things that are being done that just, uh, to say the very least, are negative for people. Who uh, have no means for people of different races and colors, and and we can go on and on. So that's uh, that's real suffering for us and real reactivity within ourselves. As you heard David admit, you can hear the tone in his voice, and if I went on, you'd hear the tone in mine. I'm sure. But I want to include people who did feel that Trump was going to change something in their lives in this suffering because uh, either it, they they feel they are continuing to be marginalized by intellectuals uh, they are continuing to uh, not be able to to gain uh, work have gainful employment in the areas that are that they are in as a result of policies that uh, interfered with freer trade with less regulations and so on and they truly believe that that this um, that was a cause of suffering for them and now uh, perhaps one feels that uh, uh, there's a further cause for suffering in that maybe some of these promises they're hoping that did get put into effect by Trump and the administration may not so I, I think that uh, there's suffering on both sides of the polarization that we have in this country, and I, I think that we want to address it. Uh, obviously, uh, we've made no bones about our own um, affiliation in terms of liberalism versus conservatism. If you just leave it at that, uh, uh, you know, in that uh, regard, that boundary. Uh, but I think what we, what Thich Nhat Hanh has to offer is a real uh, prescription for dealing with just what we're talking about, for dealing with suffering, for dealing with how do we get free of the, you know, tremendously negative emotions that we all have. And, uh, and of course, and Ram Dass is one who has espoused this forever, there's a uh, very, it is very difficult to do any kind of social action, social justice, if we walk around with this uh, rage, as, as uh, David just pointed out. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's take turns on this. I, I mean, all right. Um, there, there's this uh, this one little piece, and uh, I thought of it because, uh, or just brought it up because of what you said of, uh, about how he lived through this horrific war. He was getting bombed, okay? He and his family, he and his people. And, um, and he talks about how he used engaged Buddhism, is what he called it, 
we walked mindfully, mindfully right alongside suffering in the place where people were still running under the bombs. Okay, so I think that's, he's not speaking from any intellectual vantage point. He's speaking from an, a very experiential vantage point. He said, we created the term engaged Buddhism during the Vietnam War. As monks, nuns, and lay people during the war, many of us practiced sitting and walking meditation. But we would hear the bombs falling around us and the cries of the children and adults who were wounded. To meditate is to be aware of what is going on. What was going on around us was the suffering of many people and the destruction of life. So we were motivated by the desire to do something to relieve the suffering within us and around us. We wanted to serve others and we wanted to practice sitting and walking meditation to give us the stability and peace we needed to go out of the temple and help relieve this suffering. We walked mindful, mindfully right alongside suffering in the places where people were still running under the bombs. We practiced mindful breathing as we cared for children wounded by guns or bombs. If we hadn't practiced while we served, we would have lost ourselves, become burnt out, and not have been able to help anyone. Engaged Buddhism was born from this difficult situation. We wanted to maintain our practice while responding to the suffering around us. Engaged Buddhism isn't just Buddhism that's involved in social problems. Engaged Buddhism means we practice mindfulness wherever we are, whatever we are doing at any time. Engaged Buddhism is Buddhism that penetrates into life. If Buddhism is not engaged, it is not real Buddhism. This is the attitude of the bodhisattvas, beings whose whole intention and actions are to relieve suffering. We practice meditation and mindfulness not only for ourselves, we practice to relieve the suffering of all beings and of the earth itself with the insight of interbeing that we are inherently interconnected with all other beings. We know that when other people suffer loss, less, we suffer less. And when we suffer less, other people suffer less. That seems to be, you know, a few paragraphs uh, that's like a, an, an extraordinary container for everything that uh, I know that I have been bringing up on podcasts. And we, the last time we did a podcast was was in the same vein as well. How to how to deal with this, uh, getting ourselves straight and not being angry. And uh, you know, he calls it engaged Buddhism, but you could call it you know engaged spirit. Really, mm-hmm. I don't think it matters from from which uh, uh, religion this engagement springs from. It can, you know, every major religion has within it this same quality of caring and, uh, and basic uh, need to serve people. So uh, it's, it's, you know, when you hear about him doing this, with bombs going off around him and so on. And you think about how, you just said before, you know, we're living middle-class lives, 
and comfort and but we're seeing all this stuff mm. uh you know that that for me is a big what is wrong with us is what i'm saying <laughs> what the hell is wrong with us or as Mr. Tuari used to say, what is wrong with your brain? Yes, my boy. Uh, yeah. You know, you're right. Uh, an old, a mentor of ours when we were in India with Maharaji, um, and he came to visit us in the States. Yeah, so what is wrong with our brains in this case? Um, um, it's a difficult question because most of us believe we're not part of the, the problem. and But clearly that isn't true that our complacency about living our lives with nice furniture and a brand new uh, Range Rover and even less than that, uh, a, you know, a, ta a TV with Netflix, a, a garden that you can grow your vegetables, peace, basically, on the most part of this mainland in the United States. Um, so we think it's it's their fault, you know, we, be it, you know, the Syrian leaders or ISIS or or the Trumpies or whatever and I think what we're coming to sort of realize is that and what Thich Nhat Hanh makes clear is that um, we're all in this and there are things that we probably have not done out of our um, sort of it's almost like being in a guarded community you know like when you go to West Palm Beach or Beverly Hills and Carmel people live in these communities that are gated mm. with guards and, and you know that has you know I can understand why people do that but nevertheless we're all in one in the United States because we do not suffer in the way that people are now suffering in Syria we've seen all the pictures um, and we've not really done much uh, what can we do and I don't know I mean it, it comes down to this isn't it? it come down to like what your personal environment is like for instance about six months ago I was uh, actually waiting for a bus in, 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 in Manhattan, a long, long queue, and I couldn't get a cab, and it was, it was really driving me crazy. You know, it was hot. And suddenly this man came up to me who was clearly homeless, and um, he, he had scanned the whole line, I noticed. I was watching him. He was about 10 feet away, and then he just chose me and came over to me. And he said to me, do you remember Vietnam? And I said, yes, I do. He said, were you there? I said, no, I wasn't. He said, well, I was. And um, I was there on several tours, and I saw all kinds of nightmares. It's exactly what he said to me. And then I came home, and I thought it would be okay, and I suddenly found that I was mentally challenged, and I could not function. And in those days, in the late, sort of mid-70s, by the time it was all over, he just couldn't live and eventually went to the streets. And I was just devastated by this person. Um, I asked him his name, his name was Anthony. Um, I took in my wallet, I had five dollars in it. I took out the five dollars, he said, no, 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 I don't want money from you. Hmm. I said, but you, don't you need to eat? He said, no, I don't want the money I just want to talk to you you seem like a nice person and then I started talking he said oh you're English uh, do you like football I said yeah I do he said do you support a team I said yes I do and we got into a conversation 
And it lasted, I missed two buses. I just couldn't stop talking to him because he was so intelligent and so sensitive. And clearly was not a you know a hustler who wanted to sort of take my money or anybody else's money. He just wanted to talk. But because of his clothes and sort of a slight smell that was coming off him, uh, he felt terrible about you know sort of approaching people. But because I'm obviously a sucker, <laughs> he he approached me and we talked for a long time. And after when we finished, I said, "Is there anything I can do for you at all?" He said, no, no, you did it. You did it. I feel okay now. That was a great conversation. That's all I want. That's all I want is a conversation. No one talks to me. Mm. Little slice of suffering from 50 years ago. Uh, I might add here that uh, one of my family works with Ken Burns. And Mr. Burns is about to launch his Vietnam documentary. Mm. And it's going to be devastating. Because uh, Ken, Ken Burns is an amazing film. As a filmmaker, I have to say that uh, he's just astonishing in his research and depth and and, and and integrity. The man is not there to make money or to become famous. He's there to make films about reality as he sees it. And he spends years. He spent many years doing this Vietnam film. I can't wait for it to come out. We should all watch out for it. I don't know where it's going to be. Probably PBS. Hmm. But that's 50 years ago. Now we have Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and North Korea and so on and so forth. Yeah. Bad things are happening. How do you not get crazy? How do you remain your? How do you remain calm? Well, Thich Nhat Hanh says, as Raghu just quoted, that if you're not at ease in yourself, forget it. You can't help anybody. And if you are, you can help other people, and they can help you. And it's a circle that is a really good one. All you can do is what's in your environment to do. It's not like you know, unless you're with Médecin, some frontier, or or you know, you're with some amazing group of of altruistic souls that are out there putting their life on the line um, I'm not doing that and I can't do that but what you can do is individually try not to hurt anybody harm anybody and to improve and ameliorate their condition for however short you can how short time you can and then as his holiness has said many times it's only when you can put your wisdom and and stillness into the face of someone else and into their heart that you yourself can be truly happy so it's sort of, a, in the end, it's the selfish thing. <laughs> it's like altruism brings about inner peace, which brings about the truest and deepest happiness. Mm. But we're not in this for happiness at this point. We're in this to help people. I mean, you know, what can we do? And the great teachers like Ramdas and Thich Nhat Hanh and, and obviously others um, keep telling us, be still, learn how to meditate, learn how to be mindful of your exact condition, and see meditation as an observation point. You're observing your own rage, your own preoccupations, your own obsessions. And if you can do that enough and do it as a practice, eventually they become less and less and less obtrusive. Particularly as Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you don't fight them, he says the heart and the mind are not battlefields. We're not at war with ourselves. We should not be. In other words, you, you have a thought, you know, you're trying to be equanimous, you're trying to meditate, you know all this stuff is happening, and suddenly you're wondering why the damn Roku won't get Amazon Prime all of a sudden. Hmm. He comes into my meditation, if not worse things, but, you know, oh, I remember, I've got to watch that film on Amazon, I can't get it working, how can I get it working, who can I call? But meanwhile, you're meditating, and you're observing. And what Thich Nhat Hanh says in these pieces, don't be at war with yourself, accept these thoughts, love them, 
and eventually they too will fade in their power and you will be clearer and stiller in your self-consciousness mm. so all of that rap is all about saying we can do what we individually can do well we've been saying this forever yeah. it absolutely takes practice to be able right. to do the kinds of things that are going to open up a new world and uh, one of the things he's, he talks about is, first of all, you got to recognize that there is a true person inside of you. You know, that's important. And, and he gives it, there's a little poem I love that he gave from a 13th century, um, in 13th century Vietnam, King Tron Tai Tung wrote this poem. Oh. The true person without position lies on the pile of red flesh. <laughs> the pink color and the white color of the flesh and the and of the bones may trick us. Right? How would a beautiful way of saying how we are so bound to identify ourselves with thoughts, body sensation, ego, etc. We don't, Thich Nhat Hanh says, we don't recognize our true person. We only live with the things we think are our true person. We live our whole life in this ignorance, thinking our feelings and our flesh are the sum total of our true person. Our true person has no position, right? That's like that uh, the third Zen patriarch. No preferences, yeah. too. No position. It's not outside or inside. It's not tricked by birth and death by coming and going, by having or not having, by what we do or don't do, whether we play chess, stay in bed all day, or meditate all night. That is not our true person. I love that. So I guess, you know, the primary thing, obviously, is to take a look and see where our perspective is and realize that we are mostly operating on a day-to-day -day basis from the not true person. And the idea of the practice is to shift into a, a vantage point that is the more of the true person. So that, um, and how difficult it is, I mean, you know, David, you talked about, you can hear the rage in my voice as you went off around Trump and all of that stuff, which um, I could have duplicated probably even more vehemently than you, I'm sure. Um, right now, I'm... I'm in Thich Nhat Hanh land, and <laughs> and I'm hearing the message and not forgetting, and and so um, I think that uh, we are a far cry from realizing our true person, each one of us, and I think it's um, that's our duty. Talk about uh, we just did an article, by the way. I did with actually with Ramdas that. Uh, it, on be here now this podcast i didn't even realize this but we're our we have a monthly theme our, our theme this month is is inner and outer social action and that was a um uh a uh, an article that we put out that's on ramdas.org on the home page you can check that out it's pretty great uh, and certainly um this to so just to to revolve back to the reality of this is the first contribution we can make and whoever i mean and again this is not about the the liberal side or the conservative side this is about 
the reactions that happen in each one of us that prevent us uh, from being our true person. And so first step is realizing that. And um, and I, I, did you see, did you read this one thing from him called Seeds of Our Ancestors? This That was yeah, really uh, far out. Incredible, incredible. Yeah. yeah, he says, on a cellular level, we are still with our ancestors, and we're we're exhibiting their rage. And if we heal by various by whatever practice works, you're also healing them. Hmm. And that's very very hard to get your head around, but it's wonderful thought. That um, amazing thought, really. I hadn't come across that thought ever, honestly, when I read that, Raghu. I well, the Chinese do, and and. Um, Actually, a shaman that I have done a couple of great podcasts with uh, from South Africa, Africa, John Lockwood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you remember? yeah, we did one with him, you and yeah, I, yeah, and then I did another one. Yeah, his, uh, <clears throat> his practice is very much involved with uh, ancestors. So, um, I mean, here he says, sometimes we act without intention, but that is also action. Habit energy is pushing us. Yeah. It pushes us to do things without our being aware. Sometimes we do something without knowing we're doing it. Even when we don't want to do something, we still do it. Sometimes we say, I didn't want to do it, but it's stronger than me. It pushed me. So that is a seed, a habit energy that may have come from many generations in the past. That's a scary-ass thought, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. it is. I mean, I don't know how many yeah. times I've said, like, when just or I've said it to you probably a billion times because we've spent so much time together but remember I've said yeah this anger that I've got you know it just comes from my father because he used to come home he was like an angry dude and every night he'd come home and he'd slam the table and we all it was like an earthquake happening we all shook for minutes after it and and so forever after it was that was it old God, I got this from Dad, and mm. part of that is not taking any responsibility for me taking the appropriate actions to to deal with this uh, this emotion. And then I read this thing, and I'm going, "Holy shit! <laughs> Maybe it came from all the way back. God knows, you know how far." So that's an interesting thing, and uh, uh, for people to to realize. Um, and uh, and here's uh, within all of this under this uh, little by the way this this whole thing is uh, where did you find it you found it in Shambhala it was in the the last edition of Shambhala some before it turned into Lion's Roar it's the very last one it's I believe it's January 2016 and what it is is a, a sort of a compilation of excerpts from his he, books uh, right? yeah, yeah. yeah right and it, it, it's a wonderful primer if you haven't read any of his work or even if you have and some of the things are just so incredibly wise. Um, I wanted to mention, he talks about the wounded child inside. Mm, yeah, no, very and, good, because that's uh, alongside of these seeds that we come in with. I yes. Think, yeah, go ahead. Well, that's, you know, I mean, just, you know, my take on it was that a lot of our anger about Trump or any of those people who are in power and seem to be completely callous people a lot of that actually doesn't come from anger about their actions, but it comes from our own anger. And a lot of that comes from our wounds. Mm -hmm. And our wounds come from our childhood frequently, if not from our ancestors, certainly from our childhood. And very few people have not got them, uh, various degrees into real abuse, to just sort of um, neglect 
or or various nuances of that. And I, he talks about looking at that wounded child and, and healing that child in ourselves. And, you know, I went to a, a marvelous um, uh, psychologist about 20 years ago, um, whose name I've temporarily forgotten. He was Russian. Peter, oh, my God, I'll have to look it up. And he said, not only do you look at the wounded child, but he gave you a, a geographical perspective. He said, being a slight flight, as if you were a, a, a butterfly or a bird above that small child, and look at that small child as you remember yourself to be, and say to that small child, it's okay, it's okay, have no fear, uh, yes, you were scared by those boys, those bullies, yes, you, whatever it was. Or, you know, if you're, if you're a young girl, you know, just the fears that, that, that young girls have, look back on your young girlhood or boyhood and just be above it sort of like a ghost, if you like, a beautiful ghost, an angel, and look back on your own childhood, on that specific child. Try to remember what you look like and say to the child, it's all right. It's all right. All these years later, it's all right. And at first I thought, wow, this is really dreamy stuff. But then I realized that it is all a drama within you. It's a movie that's playing. And you might as well redirect it, recut it, you know. Yeah, I mean, actually, you he reiterated what you did say, just said around how to deal with these, you know, deep, deep, deep wounds. Um once we recognize our inner child, the second function of mindfulness is to embrace him or her. This is a very pleasant practice. Instead of fighting our emotions, we are talking, taking good care of ourselves. Mindfulness brings with her an ally, concentration. Okay, That's got to be way up there at the very top of things that we have to practice. You know, Concentration means being able to not get lost in thought during a meditation. And then that comes into day-to-day -day life where you're not, you're, your discursive uh, patterns are not pulling you away from what is at hand that you're dealing with in the moment. Um, instead of uh, Mindfulness brings with her an alley. Concentration. The first few minutes of recognizing and embracing our inner child with tenderness will bring some relief. You just said that in a, in a different way, but exactly the same thing. The difficult emotions will still be there but we won't suffer as much anymore and they then they will uh, lessen their grip on us so th these are so when when you and I talk and we say wow okay this sounds like gr it's great if but you know it seems like we're pretty far away because of the way we're constantly knee jerk reacting and living in in a in a very angry state regarding all of these happenings these are the kinds of things that all every one of us needs to do needs to in identify the that wounded place inside of us that everybody has that we needs to identify um, the seeds whether they be from generations or seeds from an early part of your childhood that created uh, an affinity to th these particular reactions so the identification of these things is extraordinarily important. And then, of course, the actual uh, practice of mindfulness, which is a um, pretty universal term now. You and I have discussed that and how, and how it you know, is being commercialized and so on and so forth. But 
in reality, the, the actual practice of meditation and awareness, or Ramdas calls witness, and the re-identification of yourself with, out of your mind into your intuitive spiritual heart, if you want to call it that, those are the actions that we can take, both on a psychological level with the wounded stuff inside and then on a spiritual level where we actually do the practice necessary like concentration and so on and so forth. So this, it's, it's, it's a real uh, pers- prescri- uh, prescription that, that uh, he, he really has given through his books, I would say. Um, uh, the, the other thing he talks about, Dave, that's really great, that I loved, that I never heard this term before, the business-less person. Did you read that thing? I did, yes. Yes, he says, the person that does nothing, <laughs> you know, holds the universe in their heart. I mean, he doesn't say it quite like that, but I understand it, you know, that we're so driven, aren't we, by uh, achievement. And actually, the society, not just our society, but all, you know, sort of organized societies say, you know, you've got to do something with your life. Mm. And yes, one can understand that phrase, but what? And very rarely does a, a government or a, you know, even a school say, well, what you can do with your life is you either, you know, learn how to, you know, make a, a driverless car, or you you learn how to uh, do great solar panels, or you do whatever, or you don't do any of that, and you just concentrate on the enormous industry of of healing your own wounds. Well, and wait observing, a minute. You know. Wait a minute. Now, this business-like person can be inventing a driverless car and be completely in the moment and not thinking he's got to do something else, that his wife is going to cook dinner, if his daughter's... No discursive thought. I mean, that's, you know, that is the highest state possible. But one can be in engaged in work. This, by the way... I got from Kalu Rinpoche a long time time ago about yeah. you can become realized while doing work. You do not need to go into a cave and so on. But in, in this businessless person, with the idea that there's nothing to do and nowhere to go, let me tell you a story. Just recently, okay. and this has happened in you know in the last month or something, I... Um, as you know, I a couple of years ago met a uh, this Baba, a jungle Baba, who I've seen a number of times when I've gone to India. And uh, so a couple other people kind of latched on and heard about it and said, gee, I, I'd like to go. You know, I t- I've talked about him in terms of being a free, very free being. I don't know his state of realization because I'm not that, but certainly uh, free uh, in the sense of no attachments and so on. So he said, uh, my friend said, I'd like to go there. So I uh, basically, he, he did get over to India, uh, actually with his girlfriend. He did manage to get to, to see him. And he came back home, and, and this is, you know, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of India. In this case, it was in the middle of the Rajasthan Desert. And uh, so I said, so what did you think? What was your impression of this being? You know what he said? He said the biggest thing I got was he didn't, he never had anywhere to go. <laughs> he, he wasn't doing anything. He didn't, like, even for me, although in this guy's a high-end programmer, right? A very engaged mm. guy, you mm. know, with a brilliant mind. 
he said, even though I had gotten rid of most of the crap that I held, hold on to in the States about my job, my kids, my, 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 this, that, and the other, most mm. of that had gone, you know, because when you go to India, that stuff does fall away. You're so far away. You're in a completely different environment. He said, but while I was sitting there, I was going, shit, wonder if my shoes are going to be stolen. They're kind of nice. <laughs> and when you see all the other shoes, they aren't so nice. Uh, I wonder where the, uh, what are they going to do for lunch? I'm not sure I can handle all the kind of Indian, you know. He said my mind was skipping from one place to another. And I was moving about as each thought came and I would act out on it. I could see in this being he was not acting out on any level coming or going nothing to do and nowhere to go and uh, I read this thing and I went yeah that's a, a perfect example of an ideal person which they called back then by the way the arhat someone who practiced attaining enlightenment um, and uh, according to his master Linji, the businessless person, is someone who doesn't run after enlightenment or grasp at anything, even if that thing is the Buddha. This person has simply stopped. She is no longer caught by anything, even theories or teachings. The business-like person, the business-less-like person, is the true person inside each one of us. The business-less person. That is a fantastic, and <laughs> I love that analogy so much. So, um, and again, these are things, um, you know, so humans are enacting this right now. Thich Nhat Hanh is, uh, is not, this is not intellectual stuff. He comes from that place. Um, and this, this Baba in India, the same thing. He is coming from that place. Um, um, both of them, by the way, have done a ton of practice. I mean, right. in caves forever, this, you know, and, and Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, from an early age was in the monastery and so on. Now, I, I think I want to I suggest one other thing because we, we, we return to very ap uh, apocalyptic uh, attitude from time to time because it does seem like that. I mean, you know, because yeah. the environment and the wars and the discrepancy yes. and the polarization. The fa I mean, you go on and on, and it certainly has reached a very, very critical point. It seems in history. Um, I think we have to introduce, and what I love about Thich Nhat Hanh is he introduces um, a positive encounter with what the future can be and that was uh, th this is little part uh, a future is possible and um, and I don't think it's too um, naive when he says when we see people living mindfully mindfully smiling and behaving in a loving manner we gain confidence in our future so isn't that another th action, social action, when you talk about taking an action within ourselves to, f you know, to find out who we truly are, to realize some of the impediments through our wounded natures and deal with them, to do the kind of practices that give us a one-pointedness so that we are able to be mindful 
th that these things are an action that we can take so that uh, by the process of becoming more who we truly are, there is a chance for there to be more and more people who reverberate off of that um, that nature that you've managed to cultivate. And I think that's a key thing. That's where Ramdas has talked about social action starts heart to heart to heart to heart. Mm. So I think, you know, that's a, that's an incredibly um, important thing. And I, because I, I do think realizing that does give hope, does it not? It does. There is a dialectic involved, though, because I know a relative of mine uh, was highly critical of my Buddhist inclinations uh, recently and, and said, you know, well, that's great. You know, you're going to improve yourself. It's all great and everything. But are you going to change the politics? Are you going to change the structure of society? Are you going to change the infrastructure? Are you going to fight against Citizens United? Are you going to fight against the militarization of the planet? Or are you going to meditate? And what Raga just said is an answer to that. But uh, I was a little bit, it just showed how backward I am because I, I got angry and said, that's nonsense. That's what I said to him. I said, that's just nonsense. I can't even get into it with you. It's such crap. And he said, well, why? Uh, my my perception of Buddhists and so forth, mystics, is that they, you know, they get very high and they, they reach levels of enlightenment. But what the hell good is that to someone who's suffering real bad stuff uh, has cancer, but there's no health care, is in a, a, a killing field in, in Afghanistan, etc. Yeah. And so my response to that was, well, to act from rage is never good. And it seems to me that many of the people I know who are activists are angry all the time. And that doesn't really work. It really doesn't. I mean, people say, okay, the protests, the angry protests of the Chicago Convention and Democratic Convention in 1968 helped end the war. No, they didn't. It was five years before the peace accords were signed. So nothing immediate happened after those violent protests. And I, I'm all for people resisting and protesting, particularly this group of miscreants who've stolen this country at this time. But I'm of the opinion, but looking at my own anger, that it has never served any good purpose except maybe to motivate me to do something. But in itself, that, that is a conversion or a transformation from anger to motivation to action. And if it's coming from, from um, our teacher Ramdas's um, wisdom, deep, deep wisdom, that it's heart to heart to heart, then it does stand a chance of working. It really does. And I believe that many of these doctors working in terrible places around the world to help people who are suffering with no health care whatsoever, that these are these are saintly people and, and wonderful people. And that they're not usually that angry. I'll tell you something else. Ex-military people that I've met are usually not full of rage and anger because they've seen things that other people just theorize about. You know, many of the people... I've had friends who were in the military and... Quite a few of them are, are quite equanimous. Not immediately, but after having experienced what they experienced, they saw the real deal here. And many of them are very calm and can see the world from a place of not anger, but just this is the way the world is. How online they are is, is questionable. You don't know that about another person. But, you know, it all gets down to this thing of how effective can you be in, in, in ameliorating condition of the planet and still maintain... Um, a, a stillness 
and a love because basically the undercurrent the subtext of oneness means that all is one and you're part of it and so is Donald Trump and Rick Perry and Betty DeVos and the rest of them Betsy DeVos we're all one we can't just sort of accept them and say well you know uh, Melania Trump's not in my oneness it, it, it just doesn't make any sense so at that point you realize that we're all complicit if you like mm-hmm. because I mean you can say well we're all liberals and we're great and we've never done any harm to anybody but actually I mean I was stuck on a highway two days ago in traffic that did not move on my lane but moved in the lane next to me so I was capable of sitting there silently and watching the lane next to me and they were all gigantic trucks it was a Deegan the horrendous Deegan Highway, <laughs> Expressway, whatever they call it. It's none of those things. It's the slow way. And I'm looking into the eyes of the drivers of the trucks. I'm seeing fatigue and all kinds of, of alienation, actually. And these trucks roll into our cities and into our villages and towns every day by the million, and people are doing that. That's what they do, and we expect it. In other words, when I order... When I order my my fiber powder from Amazon, it gets here in three days. Why does it get here in three days? Because of these working people. That's why. It's not. It doesn't come by osmosis. It doesn't come by divine fiat. It comes from hardworking people driving these trucks and working hard in a way that I've never worked. So my compassion for those people was increased on that highway. I looked at them and I thought, no wonder they voted for Trump. Well, wait because a minute. All, That's going no, wait, too wait far. No, I don't think it is because they you don't know they. That. I think most most working class people were more attracted to him than, shall we say, upper middle class people, because they saw a stasis in the society, where nothing was improving. Their wages were less than they were in 1982, and the cost of living is four times higher. Hmm. That causes people to be pissed. You can't. I mean, you can't really expect people to be happy under Obama if nothing changed. I've got nothing against Barack Obama. He seems like a gracious gentleman to me. But what really changed for these truck drivers? They lost their jobs, most of them. So that's where my compassion fits in, you know, that I feel that a lot of the people voted for Trump, 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 uh, we can call them ignorant, we can call them narrow-minded, xenophobic, faux Christians, whatever we want to call them. But they voted for a reason. They didn't just vote out of hatred for me and, and East Coasters and people who live in Los Angeles. They voted because they were discontented and they were suffering to some extent. Foreclosures. No health care. Now, I think they voted for the wrong dude. And he talks about bad hombre. He's like the ultimate bad fucking hombre. But one has to reach into their hearts. One has to. And say, why did they do this? And, and the reason they did it was because they're looking at a society that was not particularly benign to them. And, you know, there's a lot of ignorance in there. We know that. But there's also a lot of ignorance on our part when we believe in people who are who were really just sort of, you know, two-dimensional figures on, on, on uh, Anderson Cooper's show who seem to be saying the right things. But their shirts are certainly new and starched. And their suits are certainly finely sewn. And their hair is done by stylists. And they're happy little campers. Do they really care about someone in Wisconsin who lost their job 10 years ago and now does handyman work for $5 an hour 
and can't afford to pay any health care costs or anything? I mean, that's why they hated Hillary Clinton, for God's sake. They couldn't identify with this woman who was getting $250,000 a lecture. I've got nothing against her, but I understand why they didn't like her. She was a fucking terrible candidate. You, you know, I mean, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt so far? He was a massive millionaire, an aristocrat, an autocrat with God knows how much property and how much money. But he got through to those people in 1933. Hmm. And he changed the world. He changed the world. He made all kinds of work projects that, that helped those people, took them out of the Depression. He did do those things. And, and, you know, he felt for people, even though he was an aristocrat. And I think that goes back to Ramdas' heart to heart to heart. I think that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a heart. Mm. Okay, and, here's, here's... You know, so that, that's the end of my rant. There'll be many more in the next <laughs> few years, if I live. Um, but I do <laughs> want to go back to the heart to heart thing, because we're talking about the, the, uh, the uh, potential possibilities that are there if that heart to heart does take place heart to heart to heart it's a good job you're here Rago or else this would be <laughs> this, this would I mean, I'd turn into the worst person I, I just could, <laughs> I want to jump in there with you I mean it's taking everything not to just jump in there and go crazy too but actually um, because I printed out one of these uh, David sent me these articles because I didn't have them and they had a beautiful picture of Thich Nhat Hanh on one of them and I've got it right in front of me so whenever I get tugged into a place where I want to just go pillage and rape um, I get drawn back um, Oh, he's not that violent Come on, I, I, I want to speak for Raghu Marcus here. <laughs> <laughs> He puts himself down He's helped enormous numbers of people and he's um, very kind, okay, very kind so, person so. Oh, thank you uh, there's a lot of suffering in the world, and it's important for us to stay in touch with this suffering, which we are certainly managing to do in this podcast, uh, <laughs> in order to be compassionate. But to remain strong, we also need to embrace the positive elements. I think this is the next great key uh, in terms of a panacea for what we're talking about. That has to happen. Um when we see a group of people living mindfulness, mindfully, smiling and behaving in a loving manner, we gain confidence in our future. Heart to heart to heart. When we practice mindful breathing, smiling. I love it. Includes smiling. Who includes smiling? Isn't it true, though? And you walk down the street, if you smile, usually someone will smile back at you, you know? Raghu, he, he even says in your meditation, you close your eyes, you, do, you get, sit comfortably, and you put a slight smile on your face uh -huh. because it works as a machine within your consciousness. Wow. In he says it in one of these pieces. Yeah. I loved it. Smiling, resting, walking, and working, we become a positive element in society. And we will inspire confidence in everyone around us. This is the way to avoid allowing despair to overwhelm us. It is also the way to help the younger generation so they don't lose hope. It's very important we live our daily lives in such a way as to demonstrate that a future is possible. And boy, that is... 
that is definitely a key to where we are at right now in every which way but Sunday. So um, it's you know it's easy to become nihilistic, cynical. Um, it's easy to point the finger at everyone that seems a ripe target, and boy, there's a lot of them ripe targets targets right now. And and sometimes you know, uh, like the person who said to you, you know, what are you going to go? These Buddhists, they're going to go meditate somewhere. What's that going to do? Or, oh, you're going to start trying, to, you know, you're going to look at uh, inside yourself and try and find that tr truer person who you really are. You're going to try and deal with your inner demons, deal with your uh, wounded child. You're going to look at your the seeds that have been sown. You're going to look at all that, and then you're going to take action through different practices, uh, meditative practices and mindful practices, and and then everything's going to be okay. I mean, it's easy to fall into that. Meanwhile, what are you doing? You're not doing anything. You're not, you know, you know where's the revolution? Where's the resistance, right? That's a whole other thing we got going on today, the resistance. The resistance right. better have some of these elements in it, or we're just going to have a bunch of angry people against another bunch of angry people, and nothing going to happen. So it is easy to fall back into this place. Uh, and uh, even say to your, you know, I can hear us saying to ourselves at times that we are naive to think that this heart to heart to heart to heart, this redefining of who we are and then radiating that is going to have an effect. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, and I think that's part of suffering. And I really... Um, there, there's another thing, Dave, that I, um, I didn't mention to you, and it's I know that you uh, also. Uh, he wrote a great book around anger, Thich Nhat Hanh. Yes. Yeah, and uh, there's a couple of things. To be happy to me is to suffer less. If we were not capable of transforming the pain within ourselves, happiness would not be possible. Many people look for happiness outside themselves, but true happiness comes from inside. Our culture tells us happiness comes from having a lot of money, power, and high position. But if you observe carefully, you see that many rich and famous people are not happy. Uh, the most basic condition for happiness is freedom. Here we do not mean political freedom, but freedom from the mental formations of anger, despair, and delusion. Okay. Uh, in order to be free, we have to practice. We cannot ask Buddha, Jesus, God, or Muhammad to take anger out of our hearts for us. There are concrete instructions on how to tr transform the craving, anger, and confusion within us. If we follow these instructions and learn to take good care of our suffering, we can help others do the same. So he is constantly moving back, you know, moving us back into the internal as investigation and then uh, doing, doing the practices that re-identify and, and give us a new vantage point uh, from which we can look at this, this very, very tough world. Sorry about my dogs, Dave. Do you hear them? I do. I love them. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I... I uh, it's easy to get cynical, I think.
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Facebook is a beautiful sort of uh, Akashic record of, of all the people who you remember. You know, I know lots of people I really dearly love who have become enraged five times, ten times a day on Facebook. Uh, you know, against Trump and all of this, and I understand their anger, and I understand why they hate him, and they they're 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 basically coming from a good place. They want people to get healthcare. They want a, a humane government. But their own anger is is um, after a while, I noticed myself getting very repulsed by it. Uh, I couldn't look at it because it felt so wrong. You know, it's like someone said to me recently, they cannot watch Bill Maher. I like Bill Maher because I think he's quite courageous actually. But the person said to me. He's too cynical. Mm. I cannot yeah. get be, I cannot get behind that 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 head. Mm. It bothers me because ultimately, where does it go? And you could say, well, if there was a terrific, wonderful, humane, you know, Justin Trudeau situation in the United States, uh, then Bill Maher wouldn't be cynical. Uh, he would be. I love the president. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but I, you know, it's complex this stuff because satire is a is a thing that points out iniquity and 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 you know all kinds of wrongs the question is does it give you any food to nourish you to you know to transcend the anger and on the whole i don't think it does although humor can help no definitely uh, definitely can help but i yeah. think uh, i agree with that person i think and i love bill maher too and i do watch him time to time but I do think that that cynicism is uh, ultimately can be a very destructive thing because I have it in myself, and and I and I watch it, uh, and and see how it's it's an easier way to go than to do the kinds of things we've talked about in this part, podcast to get at the core of who we are and deal with the wounded stuff, and do the kind of practices that will bring us uh, transform all of that. And be able to be in a in a place where we can give, um, especially next generation, some hope about that possibility. And uh, one of the last things, David, that uh, that I read, what you sent me, was his practice around inclusiveness. Because I find that's the biggest problem that I have. I can't wrap my arms around thinking of. Half the, the other half of this country that feels opposite to where you and I do and many other people. And his, um, his, th his practice around inclusiveness, I think that that, again, that's easy to be cynical about, but I think, I think it's absolutely necessary. And uh, he talks about the practice of inclusiveness is based on the practice of understanding, compassion, and love. When you l practice looking deeply to understand suffering, the nectar of compassion will arise naturally in your heart. Loving kindness and compassion can continue to grow indefinitely, and with enough understanding and love, you can embrace and accept everything and everyone. Okay? Tall, tall, tall order. But again... Do you want to just walk around being cynical? And do you want to just, you know, laugh at people and oh. call them ignorant or whatever it is? I mean, it's a dead end, you know. Mm -hmm. I know it's a dead end, and I'm and, and I'm saying, too, that I'm having a hard time. Uh, so that's why if, if he says, if, if we truly want to live in peace, safety, and security, we must create an opportunity for those on the other side to live this way as well. 
if we know how to allow the other side into our heart, if we have that intention, we not only suffer less right away, but we also increase our own chances of having peace and security. I mean, that's pretty... I mean, it makes all the sense in the world, does it not? It does. I mean, it's funny. I, I read something yesterday about um, homelessness and uh, the writer, I think correctly, was saying that when Ronald Reagan's administration stopped all uh, subsidizing of low-income in, low housing, the increase in homelessness was was um, huge, and, mm. and it's been it's been proven. And um, you know, ergo, uh, hatred of Ronald Reagan ensues. And uh, just a funny story: I was in Los Angeles one time, and it was 1980. God knows, 88 or something. And um, I was at the ABC building in Century City for a meeting. It was early on a Saturday morning, and it was a nothing meeting, a real nothing burger of a meeting, but I had it. And the ABC building has got huge numbers of steps going down into the, into the sort of courtyard of Century City compound. And I was alone, and I walked out, and it was kind of Roman. It felt Roman, you know, this huge pillars, I think. I'm walking down and I see this gentleman walking towards me a hundred steps down in a very loud brown sports jacket with a guy next to him in dark gray suit and sunglasses. And as they came nearer, I realized it was it was Mr. Reagan. And um, I, I just went through so much in those 70 steps that were left <laughs> between because we were walking directly at each other and there was no one else anywhere. And my intolerance of Reagan's policies uh, was welling up in my, in my head but in my heart I just saw this rather old man, large man actually walking towards me, he's a large guy What Reagan. was he, the, what, after the presidency? It was just after the presidency uh -huh. yeah, but there was only one Secret Service person with him and in, as he came up the steps, instead of avoiding me he walked straight at me hmm. and I guess he saw me as a young man, even though I was getting a little older at that point. And he looked at me and he said, what do you think of this morning, young man? Stopped. Secret Service man stopped. And I said, it's a beautiful morning. Los Angeles sunny. It's not too hot. I went into detail. <laughs> he watched me. He watched me. And then he said, well, I think it's delightful. And uh, nice to meet you. Have a great day. Have a great day. And he smiled at me, and he had a very contagious smile. My God, Ronnie Reagan was a very charming human being. Hmm. So I had my <laughs> 90, 90 seconds with the President of the United States just having left oh, the President. God. And as I walked to my car and as he walked into the building, I had no hatred in, him, in, in me for him. Hmm. It had been eradicated. Now, it's come back a million times, but heart to heart in that moment... I mean, I have a bit of a reputation for meeting these people. I met Nixon, I met Trump. You know, I like them all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, seriously, I met the person. <laughs> now, you know, on recollection, Reagan seems like a decent guy compared with what we're dealing with now. <laughs> but I do remember that when he looked into my eyes, he was really looking into my eyes. Hmm. Now, the question is whether he was suffering from some 
minor dementia at that point. I don't know, which is no, probably no, why. not just after the president. Well, who knows what, what's <laughs> we real don't and what's know. not. But, it's, but I, do remember being, I do remember being rather taken by him for a moment. And, of course, I, I'm aware of the draconian policies he brought in and so, so forth. But it is true that when you look in a person's eyes and you're right next to them, uh, you realize something you don't realize when you're abstractly hating them. You know, and that is a lesson. That was a lesson for me. Uh, equally so, when I met Mr. Nixon, I, when I met President Nixon twice, and he was very kind to me, as it so happens, and we had good communications between us. But you know, that doesn't <laughs> take is, away. No, I know people are going to just. No, say, this is. A, I want to end <laughs> this podcast on this note. Get this the, guy up there. <laughs> no, the ending note is David Silver, besties with Reagan. Nixon and Trump is a reality, okay? In the moment reality, but it's still a reality, okay? Absolutely. A minute with him and Melania, and he was very gracious, actually. See? I think he, you know. <laughs> See? I'm sorry, everybody. So this is all just actually complete um, bullshit. David is really close to the, <laughs> to the center of the soul. Of these people, heart to heart. You're really you did the heart to heart thing. <laughs> Never well, mind. No think choice. about it. I had no choice. I don't know whether I had gone out of my way to do it, but you know, it uh, our, our dear friend Danny tells the story where he was at a, a meeting or a, an event, uh, and Reagan was at it, and he happened to sort of cross his path somewhere on the dais or something, and 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 Danny said he didn't know quite what to say to him, and then um, Reagan looked at Danny and said. Have you uh, tried the cookies? They're really, they're really good. And you know, we're all human beings in this, and some some people do bad, nasty, horrible, despicable things to other people. But you know, it, it you just have to get over that in yourself. I mean, that's what Thich Nhat Hanh is brilliant about, and and Richard Albert. I mean, they really Richard from early. Albert. <laughs> I'm sick of saying Ramdas. I sound like a you know a psychophant. Um, <laughs> I'm not, but I, I will say this: that Ramdas taught me over the years, over and over and over and over again, to look inside and 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 stop objectifying this anger mm. and saying that anger is only about something that happened out there. Mm-hmm. I think what Raghu and I have been talking a lot about today is the fact that much of that anger is aimed at something that happened to you in a formative time mm-hmm. that traumatized you in some way, and therefore you are angry full stop, period. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if Jesus Christ was the President of the United States. Yeah. You'd be angry at him. You'd say, you know, why don't you cut your hair at Jesus? Yeah. It's bothering me. On the other hand, we also, I want to, since this is a uh, PPS on this note, <laughs> we absolutely, this none of this means that while you are trying to straighten your heart out so that you can be effective and you can reflect uh, an energy that is going to help change all of this, you still, whatever you can do to affect change, please. I mean, we all have to do something. We all, yes, resist if that's part of what you need to be doing right now, joining whatever organizations there are, um, speaking to congressmen about your you know how you see what is going on and how you see they they represent us in whatever districts and how they act uh, needs to be a reflection of of who we are and how we got them where they are. So yes, I, everything needs to go on in terms of action. 
that's um, social action, social justice. But it can't go on. I guess that's what we're really saying. And Thich Nhat Hanh really points the way. It cannot go on without this internal investigation and transformation. So that's yeah, our story, can, and we're sticking to yes. it, okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if he, if he can walk while bombs are falling and still remain... Yeah. You know this this advanced soul full of love and teachings and and, and help. Yeah. You know if he can do that, we can do it. You know now, when we are you know living in relative comfort, and um, hopefully that'll go on for all of us. But it may not. And so no matter what, his ability to be equanimous and full of loving kindness in a time when people were being detonated by bombs. Uh, is the living proof living perspective living proof living proof yeah and it's, so it's yeah. a, it's it's all possible for us and we should have uh, real hope and and share that hope with next generation that's going to really need to have positive reinforcement reinforcement yes. dave thanks so much for coming and the, you know this is uh, and and it's, suggesting a tick not hunt cuz you and i never did it when when we no. started these podcasts, and since then I have not uh, thought of, uh, boy, he has a lot of just the perfect teaching. So uh, everybody out there, you'll go to uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com and Mind Rolling, and we will have a page up uh, about this podcast when we do our show notes and all that, telling you what... Uh, surmising what we went through here we will put up some of his most important books uh, so that uh, you can have a chance to uh, and you can probably and this is a great compilation I bet if you wrote to what's now called Lion's Roar so we should put something up about Lion's Roar and I bet if you wrote to them they might be able to you might have to subscribe to get the full breadth of all the articles Um, and we certainly can't put them up at there it is right there, yes. Uh, for those of you that are watching this on YouTube, otherwise we just put up a uh, the cover of the magazine, Shambhala Sun, which is now called Lion's Roar. And we'll, we'll help, uh, we'll, we'll do some research because this is uh, a way in which they pulled articles from different books, so it's really fabulous. And, um, okay, Dave, we've got to continue in our, investigations about how to uh, get rid of the rage yeah it's extraordinarily crucial to all of us yeah. really really thank god all right well th- uh, thanks raghu thank you Great david this is mind rolling we'll see you next week